0: Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I am an Elvis fan. I've been an Elvis fan since I was nine years old. And I tell that tale in the precursor to this podcast, or its companion piece, if you like, which I call The Boy Who Dared to Dream, and subtitle Memories of an Elvis Fan. However, when I made that documentary for RTE Radio 1 in 2017 to mark the 40th anniversary of Elvis's death, it was turned down. They said it was too personal to broadcast. Hmm, yeah, okay. Either way, I then went on to make this documentary, Conversations About the King. It was based on interviews I'd done over the preceding 30 years, mostly for the print media, and so the sound isn't always great quality. But, and if you're an Elvis fan, you will get this, being invited as a fan, to spend an afternoon in the home of Sam Phillips, founder of Sun Records, or to sit in a hotel room in Nashville and chat with DJ Fontana, Elvis's original drummer, or sit in a Dublin hotel room and chat with one of the Jordanaires, Gordon Stoker, was heaven to me. In fact, Gordon Stoker stopped the interview at one point and said, I'm really enjoying talking to you, Joe, because I can tell that you truly care about Elvis. If you do... I hope this podcast brings you joy and maybe even a little illumination because being the kind of dreamer I am and that Elvis helped make me. My goal for the original broadcast and for this podcast is the relatively minuscule task of basically rewriting the history of Elvis Presley and of rock and roll. But be warned, Copyright laws dictate that I can play only parts of songs. If you want to hear the full show, check out Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read the articles that came out of these chats, check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. But enjoy.
1: Well, that's all right, Mama.
2: Elvis, if you listen to The Sun Sessions, the Elvis album, you can hear him come in and sing just a strumming guitar, go, well, that's all right, mama. This is the pop rock. That, that thrilled me. Obviously, and even obviously how he looked, everything is quite angelic looking, but there was just something about his personality and everything as well that wasn't quite...
0: OK, so Elvis no. the Elvis the angel. I said there's, there's only
2: been one man that I ever fancied as a pre-pubescent, right? and that was Mark yeah. Boland.
3: Yeah.
2: But coming right behind that, the one who charged me heterosexually would be Elvis. Right. And the leather suit in the comeback special. Right.
0: Hi, welcome to Joe Jackson's Conversations about the King. And there you heard Cliff Richard, Sinead O'Connor and Bono. So, at the age of nine, Bono was turned on by the King's body in black leather. Hey, who am I to talk? At the same age, I had my first out-of-body experience thanks to the King. Not that I saw it as that as a child. All I knew was that as I sat in the cinema watching this fella, in whom I had absolutely no interest, Elvis Parsley, as I called him, he started talking to me. I know what you're saying. Are you sure it wasn't the music from the Twilight Zone you heard? No, it wasn't. As Presley sang Wooden Heart and beckoned for children to sing along, he seemed to be saying, Joseph, that means you too. No, Bono, he didn't mean that. And the louder I sang, the more I felt like I was flying. Then a few weeks later, Elvis sent me flying in another sense in that he made me a dreamer. When I read that he'd been a truck driver, that's what my dad was, and became a star after making a demo record, I felt... That I could become anything, like, say, a journalist. Then, when I read that his demo was recorded at Sun Records, run by Sam Phillips, I decided someday I'd have to go to Memphis to thank Mr. Phillips for discovering my new hero, Elvis. Roughly a quarter century later, I did that.
1: Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do it, that's all right all right. Uh what happened on that is that the sessions that we'd had are what we call wood shedding, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, that uh, the I put Scott and Bill with him and they'd go and rehearse and they'd come and say, We believe we got something. I'd listen and In my opinion, if we had it, fine. Because, God, I was looking for it each time, you know. But I would send them away. But I'd send them away in a manner that I could hear a lot of great potential. But we weren't there. And uh, that's all right. Mama was uh, something that he cut out on in the studio, see. Playing around after we were getting ready, just stop. Not, not, a, not at
0: your suggestion, not mm-hmm. at your suggestion, because oh. someone said now that you came in with the record and said, do that. So that's no, Okay, no, 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 good. No, 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 no. Well, I'd like to address this, because if these are the, the myths that are gaining currency, it's better to throw them out the window by addressing them. You know what I mean? It's the suggestion that Elvis Presley came in and wanted to be either a gospel singer or a pop singer, and you had a vision of delivering black music to white people, and
1: you made him go along with that vision. No, I didn't make him. I influenced him. But uh, no, I, I convinced him. I didn't, you know, I, 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 the way I dealt with I was in charge of the sessions. Right. You understand? But I didn't go in dictatorially and, and, and say, you can't. Never. But you're a very strong individual,
0: no one can Very you. strong. And they were very young boys and so very,
1: very young and they knew damn well that I knew what the hell I was trying to achieve because I took the time to explain. Just like I am with you, and you getting impatient. I'm not getting impatient. Do
0: you think I'm getting impatient?
2: No.
1: But hell, you taking up too much of my time. I'm trying to tell you okay. uh uh, that i ain't gonna write a book for you i'm giving you some stuff that is that is unbelievable but totally believable train a ride
0: 16 coaches well, black train got my First you heard That's Alright Mama, recorded on July the 5th, 1954 with Elvis on rhythm guitar, Scotty Moore on lead and Bill Black on bass. And there goes Mystery Train, Elvis's final son single in 1955 and which I've loved since 65. But let me explain something. Before meeting Sam, I was told Mr. Phillips would prefer if you didn't ask too much about Elvis. After nearly 40 years, he said all he has to say on that subject. So I had to sneak in questions about the King. Some, as you heard, knocked him off track. But even though Sam said there, you're taking up too much of my time, it was he who extended our one-hour interview to nearer three. Sam Phillips also claimed that he gave me the interview simply because I'd promised to tell his story, if you can believe this quote, not in the usual, purely musicological and thus culturally outmoded sense, but more so from a psychological and socio-political perspective. Hey, I'd just gotten a college degree in pop culture and had to justify it some way. But heady and pretentious as my assertion may sound, it paid off even in the sense that I became the only Irish journalist Sam Phillips ever gave an interview to and I even got invited to his home. My
1: approach also led to quotes like this. And you know what? The things I love better than anything in the world was giving people the opportunity to express themselves. That included... Probably the poorest man I ever recorded, White, was Elvis. Do you believe Stone's greatest or your greatest achievement is that you gave a voice to uh, people who, who, who hadn't got a voice,
0: to, to be their like, working class people, to underprivileged Absolutely
1: people? Absolutely, and that is exactly what I did. Precisely Okay. right all
0: the way. Well, that's the end of the interview, because I'll have to end it with that. Because that's what I think you did do. Thank you. And I thank you for doing John. it, because it gave me liberation in Ireland. I
1: genuinely thank you. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well,
0: it's down at the end of Lonely Street, that heartbreak hotel. Well, I'll be, I'll be this lonely, baby. Well, I'm so lonely. I'll be this lonely. I could die. Heartbreak Hotel, recorded at Elvis' first Dorsier Victor sessions in January 1956. But how's this for the dreams of an Elvis fan coming almost unbelievably true? A day before interviewing Sam in Memphis, I interviewed in Nashville where that song was recorded, Elvis' drummer on that session, DJ Fontana. The drums were used in only four of Elvis's son recording
3: hmm that's yeah. right, yeah.
0: Probably played by Johnny Bernaro, would that be the
2: person? It was Johnny
3: Bernaro, well, that's that's my understanding, because I, I had wondered about that for years, and uh, I asked Scotty Moore about it, he said it was Johnny Bernaro. Was it true that Sam Phillips didn't want uh, a drummer on Elvis's sessions? The sound that they were getting in those days, you really didn't need a drummer.
0: So, like, Elvis would be slapping the back of the guitar? and
3: uh... Yeah, oh, he would be strumming, so then Bill would slap the bass, right. which made it sound like a drum in there, but it wasn't. Okay. So, then of course, Scotty had his plex guitar and everything, uh-huh. so the the sound was so unique. And, and then Sam's had that slate that slap tape echo thing going. No, because then when when your first sessions were uh,
0: Heartbreak Hotel. Heartbreak
3: on up, yeah. You know, and then
0: they really beefed up that echo. Yeah. That kind of I think they may maybe trying to. Copy. I mean,
3: and they were trying to copy the Sun sound, you know, and which is almost impossible. I've never heard a record yet that would duplicate that sound. I I don't think anybody knows what happened.
0: What would be what would have been your input into those songs?
3: We basically do what we wanted to do, you know. He never restricted anyone from playing, because you know he liked drums, he liked guitar, he liked you know he just liked instruments. So you know he'd say, well, play. Then if it doesn't work, we'll do something else.
0: Hound Dog has probably the most famous drum roll in rock history. Did you enjoy cutting that? Oh yeah. Or was it, I, uh, I got a chance to play a little bit. Yeah, to get the main focus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it became very much a focus for the stage show in the 50s, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Like you That did. was
3: usually his closing number there for like
0: doing reprise, 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 working it on up.
3: Mm-hmm. And you'd have to work your ass off. And sometimes, you know I mean? yeah, and then a lot of then, then he got this brilliant idea of going into the slow part, you know, in the stage show. Yeah. You ain't nothing but a house. High-
0: I'm Doug, one of Rock's great spirituals. Yo, run that by me again, Joe? Okay. Here's the thing about the King. Gospel music, more than any other single musical genre, defined his art and sat at the centre of his soul. I began to realise that fact as far back as October the 10th, 1966, the day I bought Elvis' 1960 gospel LP, His Hand in Mine. In its sleeve notes, I read this. Church music and hymns made up the first music Elvis Presley ever heard. Church music was also the first music Elvis ever sang. I also read this recollection from his mother, Gladys. When Elvis was just a little fellow, he would slide off my lap, run down the aisle and scramble up to the platform of the church. He would stand looking at the choir and try to sing with them. He was too little to know the words, but he could carry the tune. And I learned that gospel music remained for Elvis Presley, a source of comfort and spiritual ease. Then later in life I learned that Elvis loved in particular gospel quartets and that not long before recording That's All Right, he tried to join one, the Songfellows, but was told either that he couldn't sing or he couldn't sing harmony. Months later they offered him the gig, but Elvis refused and told them, I done signed to sing the blues at sun. But here's my tilt on all this. I now happen to believe that Elvis transformed That's All Right from a loping blues into a song of celebration by singing it as a gospel song, probably purely instinctively. Either way, months later, Elvis told the Jordanaires gospel quartet that if he ever got a major record deal, he'd like them to sing on his records. They finally did for the first time on recordings such as Hound Dog, a song Elvis did 31 takes of to get the feel right. But it wasn't until 1990, when I interviewed Gordon Stoker from the Jordanaires, I finally understood what that feel was. He said that Elvis loved the Jordanaires because they were the first white group who sang black. Then Stoker, their first tenor, explained this to me. It's not what we call gospel. It's more a hand clapping, repetitive type music that repeated a story over and over and over again in order to build a fervour, a prayerful feeling that will slowly bring you higher and higher, closer in some sense to a sense of ecstasy or heaven or if you like, God. God. Well, I'm working on a building
1: It's a true foundation I'm holding up the bloodstain blood stain. Burning for my Lord Well, I never get tired, tired, tired Of working on the building I'm going up to heaven Oh, you got get
0: Working on the building A song I loved the first time I heard it in 1966 Because it reminded me so much of That's Alright Mama But the quote that Gordon gave me led to a little epiphany. I realised that the ever ascending song structure he described could equally apply to Hound Dog. Even the live version Elvis did for the first time that night on the Milton Berle show in 1956, and which DJ had referred to. It's always been seen as simply a bump and grind, purely sexual. And by the way, Sam Phillips told me that Elvis always saw sex as something to celebrate, not as a source of shame. God bless him. But couldn't the song structure also be seen as prayer-like. I said that to Gordon Stoker. He replied, definitely. It was the same slowly building fervour Elvis brought to his rock and roll recordings like Hound Dog. The same feeling, exactly. So you see, Hound Dog is a spiritual. Gordon also rejected the reductive view that rock and roll mimics merely the rhythms of sex. He said, that's missing the point completely. It copied the rhythms of prayer, particularly as blacks pray in their spirituals. But okay, even though I'd loved the Jordanaires since my 10th birthday when I first noticed their voices backing Elvis on an old song called A Fool Such As I, I knew that many rock fans say they wish the Jordanaires weren't wailing away on songs like Hound Dog. So I put that to Gordon. He said this. I'll tell you for sure, Elvis Presley would not have given the performance he gave were we not as close to him. And I mean physically close. Elvis needed us there at his shoulder even when we weren't on the song. That's part of how his love for gospel quartets influenced him, where he felt most at home. Then Gordon Stoker gave me this insight into Elvis's psyche. He said that Presley, after he left the army in 1960, tapped into many musical styles because he was unsure of himself and, quote, so hungry to try something new to prove himself again and to find his voice and soul as a singer, particularly following his mother's death, which affected him deeply. Then Gordon Stoker said this, but I believe he really only tapped into that experience in depth when we did the His Hand in Mine LP. Known only to him is one of the guy's greatest recordings ever, because it's the story of what Elvis was thinking and dreaming. He really believed in that lyric. We watched him being transformed as he sang that song. Known only to Him
1: are the great hidden secrets I'll fear not the darkness when my flame shall dim I know not what the future holds But I know who holds the future It's a secret, not
0: only to him. Elvis at his purest. But now I want to talk about his movie songs. Wooden Heart was the first I loved, but next in line was Follow That Dream, which maybe not surprisingly became my first theme song at the age of 10 again. In fact, I'm putting this next section in the show purely to try and inspire you to follow your dream, whatever it may be. In 1992, I interviewed a in Memphis, Ben Wiseman, who composed not only the music for "Wooden Heart" and Follow That Dream, but also some of Elvis's better movie songs such as I'll Be Back. And even though, after hearing what Gordon had said to me, I shouldn't have been surprised at a tale Wiseman told I was. He said that during the 1957 sessions for his song Got A Lot Of Living To Do, Elvis had some of his Memphis buddies dance around the microphone as if said wise man drumming up a holy revival feeling. And maybe that memory was on wise man's mind when he wrote this, you guessed it, ever ascending
1: melody. I've gotta follow that dream wherever that dream may lead. I gotta follow that dream, follow
0: that me. lead. I mean, I gotta tell you, that song meant to have a lot to me.
1: Well, that I mean, that's one of the thrilling. most important songs in my life. Do You know, when I go home after this trip, Who knows, Ben Wise? who knows about it? And I've always felt nobody really knows, you know, but when I came out here, and and Joe, like you're telling me, I'm going back with people
0: know my song. inspired,
1: I hope. Oh, absolutely, because uh, you know, you get a feeling of a little inferiority complex, you know, you wrote, nobody knows that you wrote it. I mean, it's just very, very.
0: uh, Yeah, no, I thought of it the other night when I was flying into Memphis, it's my second time here, and I'm saying, uh, I'm coming in, I was very upset, you know, it's Nervous' anniversary, meant a hell of a lot to me, Mm -hmm. and I just thought, what on earth took me from Wooden Heart, because it has to be the starting point, to here. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And the logical point, like I was a nine-year-old boy, I loved the song Wooden Heart. My cousin taught me the words, we sang it. That's where it started. And it ends with me talking to you, or I'm here talking to you who wrote it. But Follow That Dream was the second song that came into my mind as the plane came down into Memphis. I thought, well, this is the dream. But I think it has something got to do. The lyrics obviously have that thing, but it's also the rising melody. Because he's going, you got it, and you bring it up. Yes, uh, uh, so it's kind yeah, of yes. reach for it, reach for it, reach for it. Yes, You know I, what I mean, I, in, in the melodies. Unbelievable. And yes, I felt blessed, as many Elvis fans would, to be able to thank Ben Wiseman for writing Even Follow That Dream. However, I also am a music critic, and I couldn't quite buy into his defence of another song he helped create and that Elvis hated. In fact, it's a dog of a song called, suitably enough, It's a Dog's Life. And it's certainly a long way from hound dog in every sense.
1: Curl up there over an easy chair. Man, it won't be hard to take. Oh. <laughs> no, no. Ra, ra, ra,
0: ra, ra, ra. Ra. Elvis cracking up and barking. And in fact, Elvis cracked up a lot while recording songs for the abysmal Paradise Hawaiian-style movie in 1965. He didn't even bother to record with musicians. He merely added his voice to an existing backing track. But okay, let's face the elephant in Elvis' room or the recording studio. Was he stoned at those sessions? Well, let me answer that question this way. Joby Baker, who played his drummer in Girl Happy, told me that one day he and Gary Crosby were smoking dope on the movie set and Elvis came over and said that drugs weren't good for them. Joby looked into Elvis's eyes, reckoned he was sky high on pills and wanted to reply but didn't. Okay then, I'll have whatever you're on. But now let's hear Elvis sounding like a wino.
1: He says... Dating is a game that grown us play. Dating means acting in a silly way. Dating makes a gal start wiggle walking. This is like a baby. This <laughs> is like a guy.
0: So <laughs> like a wine, old man. It is so hot. So
3: hot. We can't get on.
2: So what? Uh, so
0: Elvis is so high. And no, I'm not saying he was on drugs. That's the name of the song. And if songs like It's a Dog's Life capture the sound of Elvis having sold his soul for the Hollywood dollar, that recording from May 1966, which later turned up on his true musical comeback album, How Great Thou Art in 67, captures the sound of a soul being reclaimed. But let me give you a little backstory on all this. Circa 1964, Elvis moved into what I believe to have been the latest phase of his lifelong spiritual search. He held firm to his faith in the Bible, but that faith was not unquestioning. And Elvis also began to explore, say, New Age ideologies, numerology, and Eastern religions. He also began to secretly attend the Self-Realisation Fellowship Lake Shrine Temple in LA. And in an attempt to replicate the sense of Zen calm he found in those surroundings, had built a Graceland, what he called his own meditation garden. Elvis also loved Joseph Benner's book, The Impersonal Life, which is all about the God within. Don't take my word for that. Tom Jones told me Elvis gave him a copy and that he described it as such. Through the Eyes of the Masters by David Arias is another book Elvis loved. It's about masters of enlightenment, including Christ. But it's in the chapter on Master Kut Humi, which prophesies the coming of one who shall among other things, opened the ears of the deaf to the divine music of the spheres that Elvis wrote circa 1965. God loves you, but he loves you best when you sing. But here's the irony. Kuthumi sought to pass on to people the meaning of karmic balance. And I suspect that is not a heightened sense of being, Elvis felt while singing It's a Dog's Life. But as I say, his soul began to be reclaimed when he recorded the How Great Thou Art LP, when maybe he was so high spiritually. And then came
3: the 68 special.
0: So, I mean, for many, that was one of the finest moments of Elvis and the band.
3: Oh, we had a great time. We didn't have to worry about dialogue, we didn't have to worry about a schedule, whether you play this, play that. They just said, guys, go out there and play. We'll turn the cameras on. We'll work a while. And when we get tired, we'll cut it off.
0: Scotty asked him to play Trying to Get to You or something. Uh, one of them songs,
3: uh, Tarnell, darling, it's, it's a line in there in one of them songs. Uh, and yeah. Scotty loved that line.
1: I've been traveling over mountains Even through the valleys too well, I've been traveling night and day
3: I've been running all the way
1: Baby, trying to
0: get to you Elvis clearly reconnected with the full force of his powers vocally, musically and spiritually. Whether or not he was singing to a woman, maybe, as with so many other recordings, to his mother, or through a woman to a deity. Either way, as I said, his soul was free to fly again, and it did very much so for all to see during that version of trying to get to you. But if you didn't notice that, while watching extended footage from the sit-down session of the 68 special, don't worry, nor did I until recently. In fact, it was my partner, a psychotherapist, who noticed it before I did. She said that while singing that song, Elvis seemed to leave his body and that at its end, he seemed to be struggling to relocate himself in the physical realm before he could address the audience. And it's true, Elvis did look like he became pure spirit. If you want to see the king looking transcendent, check it out. And transcendence also is what sits at the soul
3: of this record. We're
1: calling.
0: Sorry, but I'm cutting the trap here too of broadcasting. This live in Las Vegas take of suspicious minds from 1969 lasts 7 minutes. So, I got to fade it to tell you two things. One night in 1993, Sam Phillips said this to me. I listen to the clarity brought up by modern technology like CDs and I hear the essence of Elvis. I hear the essence of a spirit, and to trace that to its source, you have to address the fact that this guy was deeply religious. I don't give a good goddamn what Elvis was singing. You can feel the amount of soul he projected into these songs. Each one is a product of his spirituality. It's that gospel feel I get even when I hear again Elvis's demo, My Happiness. You can talk about his secular and religious songs, but that distinction is bull. Sam Phillips also rejected the notion that rock and roll is all about sex. He said, We are body and soul. That's where this music comes from, the meeting point of those two forces. That's where all great music comes from. And yes, Sam agreed when I suggested that more than anything, Elvis's spirituality accounts for his core appeal and probably always will. But okay, quick cut to another phone call a few weeks later, this time with Dory Previn, once a hero of mine, but now more so a friend. She saw Elvis in Vegas in 69 and said, When he went into suspicious minds, I realised I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Not in any dramatic play, musical or nightclub no one ever had that visceral effect on me as watching Elvis did doing that song so did Dory get from Elvis a sexual charge no she said it was more like watching a Dionysian force on stage it was a dynamic charge that left you unable to breathe it was so exciting but I didn't get a sexual charge from Elvis even though he was extremely sexual you did want to say stop I can't take this anymore And in that way, it was like mental sex. You were exhausted, yet wanted him to keep going. You'd think he can't get any better than he did. He'd die on stage or have to stop because we'd die. But he'd get it better again. And each time he'd sing that verse, he'd be down on his knee or throwing his guitar to a guy behind him or moving across the stage like a ballet dancer yet doing karate. It was pure theatre, rock theatre, kinetic art. And the backing singers were urging him on, singing the same lines, pushing the whole thing higher and higher. All of this made it sound to me that Elvis had basically brought his Memphis gospel show to Vegas. Dory agreed. That's what it was. But did she in the end sense that he through this performance was seeking transcendence? Yes, absolutely. Dory said, that's what I meant when I said the force was Dionysian. That's God. It was transcendence Elvis was seeking and transcendence he passed on to me that night because I was feeling low as a result of my marriage breaking up. But he raised me way above all that. He raised me above all that. Dory Previn there certainly speaking for me and maybe again for you. Whatever the that. Maybe, which attempts to oppress your spirit. But in 1993 in Nashville, I learned that not all agree that Elvis fulfilled his destiny. This is country singer Ricky Skaggs.
1: Elvis was called to be an evangelist. There's no doubt in my mind so? that Elvis Presley had the calling of God on his life to be one of the greatest evangelists, like a Billy Graham, only okay. in music to young okay. that young generation of people. He forfeited his inheritance. He so? never he never walked in that. Well,
0: you see, Sam Phillips argued even like, uh, uh, and he said to me, "I don't care how people say his music deteriorated. There was a core spiritual longing again in Elvis's music, That's and it. I don't care if he was singing." hurt at the end of his life, right. or, or harbour lights at the beginning, Yeah, that he still sees Elvis as a spiritual singer. Now You may well, not agree with that. No, I think he was. He lifted my spirit with his gospel albums. Oh, he did. See, you it, know what I mean? It, it, so maybe he didn't fail.
1: Well, no, I don't think he, it wasn't that. He did not walk in the fullness of what God All had right. designed for
0: him. Right. I wonder, does Ricky Skaggs have a direct line to the deity? But if what he meant when he said that by not walking in what he calls the fullness of what God had designed for him, the inheritance Elvis forfeited was his right to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a staggeringly arrogant and unchristian thing to say. Right, so you don't agree with Ricky Skaggs who described him as a failed evangelist and a failed spirit? That he ignored the call of the Lord and went into rock and roll and he let all Christians down? No. Basically. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, but that's, basically. The, that's the right wing the fundamentalist re- right. revisionist look on Elvis Presley from Nashville as a Six months ago, when I talked to him. Yeah, I know that's the way And the mean. whole suggestion was that if he died, a yes. drugs-induced, heartbroken man, so be it. He had ignored mm. the call of the Lord.
2: It's selfishness to remove yourself from the world and to create a, this counterculture. These fundamentalists have removed themselves from the world where they are completely, where their knowledge, some of it I would have a great deal of respect for, their understanding of the scriptures, is of no use to us. They're on a different planet. At least, (laughs) as fucking off the wall as he was, was at least on our planet, was Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) You know know what I mean?
0: And, and... Well, he was spreading the uncertainty that you suggested with Zoropa is like the, the, the yeah. feel of the times. I mean, OK, he didn't give us the answers, but he gave us the sense yeah. that there was something else. Yeah. There was something more. I don't see that as failed evangelism. No, I don't either. You know what I mean? Or a or, or wasted life. Yeah. yeah. Later, during that chat over a meal in a Kalini hotel, he also explained why you two ended their Zoropa show as Elvis ended all his concert from 1969 onwards by singing Can't Help Falling in Love. Elvis sang it as a gospel song to God through the audience, I believe. Bono saw it as something different, but similar in the end. During their Zeropa tour, it started off as an Elvis parody, said Bono, because, he said, it's the drug addict strung out on the audience. However, that version then ends, he said, with his own voice singing falsetto, and this, to him, was, in essence, the sound of the child on the cover of U2's first album. Bono reminding us, this is where I come from. Where is that, exactly? Well... Bono then went on to suggest that a similar picture I'd always loved of Elvis as a child, aged two or three, taken in Tupelo, could symbolise a Christian in the original state of grace. In amongst all the trash,
2: there is this little kind of thing that's just there, the quiet voice, and it's still there. What,
0: that is consistent and pure? Yeah, that's just
2: underneath all that thing. And that's what people loved Elvis too, even amongst all that crap. Yeah. That was, was still that thing in him. The
0: voice, that voice that lingers. The voice that lingers. And that voice, and this I will say one final time, is to me fundamentally spiritual. So let's leave the last word to the king and to his glorious choir of tellingly biracial singers, the white quartet, the Imperials, and a black trio, the Sweet Inspirations. Plus, with her sky-high soprano voice, Millie Kirkham. And all taking us higher and higher to a sense of ecstasy, or if you like. God. Thanks for listening. I'll leave it to Elvis to say goodnight. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I really hope that podcast broadened out people's perspectives on the music and the soul of Elvis Aaron Presley. I thank you for listening and will remind you again, if you want to read the articles that came out of those chats, check joejacksoninterviewer.com.